Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your love, your goodness, the truth that you revealed through Jesus and the salvation you provided. We ask that your spirit will join us, transform us, enlighten us, empower us to take this message to the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So the lesson we're doing is lesson two in the quarterly family seasons, and the title is The Choices We Make. And I, I first have to say I'm a little disappointed in myself as I, re- I looked at a few minutes of the Q&A session last week and um, I allowed uh, the pressure of trying to get 27 pages of questions done in 60 minutes, I think, to make me sound a little bit too urgent and stern and I was like, just going to admit force. And you know what? I wasn't happy with my tone and how I came across. I want to apologize to you for, for, for not slowing it down. And maybe I should have done less questions and covered less material and just been a little easier going. So I'm going to try to slow down and be a little easier going from now on, you guys. So... Yeah, good luck with that, right? Yeah. A news article in the Spectrum magazine this week reads as follows. In business meeting held last week, March 21 to 24, 2019, delegates of the Czech-Slovak Union of the Seventh-day Adventist Church voted their affirmation that women pastors should be ordained to pastoral ministry while rejecting the document regard for and practice of the General Conference session and General Conference Executive Committee actions. That, that was voted at the GC's annual council in October of 2013, uh, 2018. In their resolution, they state uh, that the Czech-Slovak Union Conference does not agree with the enforcement of unity by a higher organizational body. They believe that unity comes from the action of the Holy Spirit on every individual. Do you think people who lived under a dictatorship for decades are perhaps maybe a little more savvy and sensitive to the movements of imperialism and recognize a little more quickly such tactics are not in keeping with God's design for unity. Hmm. Yeah. In the discussion after the article, if you go to Spectrum, you can read the discussion that people have after the article. Some argued that the actions of the Czech Union could cause a split in that church members should not rebel against church leadership of the general conference. What I found interesting was a response to that concern by another person who cited this quotation from Ellen White, which she wrote in the aftermath of the 1888 Minneapolis General Conference. And then that person made an observation. I'm going to share the quote and then the observation. When I purpose to leave Minneapolis, this is Ellen White writing, when I purpose to leave Minneapolis, the angel of the Lord stood by me and said, and then the following quote that I'm about to read you is from the angel of the Lord, according to her, who is Christ, by the way. And you can get that as you see the change in what's actually said in the quote. Here's the quote. Not so. God has a work for you to do in this place. The people are acting over or reenacting the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I have placed you in your proper position, which those who are not in the light will not acknowledge. They will not heed your testimony. I'm going to pause right in the middle of this quote from the angel of the Lord. What was Ellen White advocating in 1888 that the leadership was refusing to heed? She was advocating the healing gospel that we're teaching, promoted by Jones and Wagner, called Righteousness by Faith. The Righteousness by Faith, must know the, which is actual, real, 
genuine righteousness within the heart mind of those who trust Jesus. That's what she was advocating. The rebuilding and healing of our characters when we trust in Jesus. The fulfillment of the day of at one mint metaphor. The cleansing of the bride. The groom receiving his bride and bringing her into oneness with him. The cleansing of the sanctuary. All of these metaphors are describing the exact same message which is healing a people But church leadership rejected this healing view, which was to prepare a people to walk into the heavenly promised land. They rejected this and took the role of Korah, who at the border of the promised land said, we can never go in and occupy that land. It's too dangerous for us to do and incited fear in the people. And they rejected the promise of God to bring them into the promised land. And our church leaders who prefer the imperial law view have been telling Adventists ever since that we can't succeed in experiencing Christ's righteousness by trust or faith in him. We cannot be prepared to stand in his presence. We can only be declared legally righteous, even though we're not. Continuing on with the quote from the angel of the Lord. But I will be with you. My grace and power shall sustain you. It is not you they are despising, but the messengers and the message I send to my people. Pause again. Friends have come in reason around the world who are sharing this message. I want you to realize when you are told you're not welcome, that you can't teach your Sabbath school class, that you can't share the wonders of God's love that has so transformed your lives, recognize they are not rejecting you, but Christ, just like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Continue with the quote from the angel of the Lord. They have shown contempt for the word of the Lord. Satan has blinded their eyes and perverted their judgment. And unless every soul shall repent of their sin, this unsanctified independence that is doing insult to the spirit of God, they will walk in darkness. I will remove the candlestick out of his place, except they repent and be converted that I should heal them. They have obscured their spiritual eyesight. What does this mean? How? How have they obscured their spiritual eyesight? What what, did they do? By refusing the truth of God's design law and the healing remedy of Jesus Christ to bring genuine righteousness into the hearts of people and holding to an imperial law lie, they blind themselves to how reality actually works and live in a fantasy of confusion and contradictions mirroring the sinful world. And you think of all the fantastical contradictions that the imperial law model of Christianity teaches. God loves you, but if you don't love him, he'll torture you. Fantastical contradictions. Uh, Jesus is an exact representation of the Father, but God killed Jesus. Now Jesus has to plead to the Father so he won't kill you. Fantastical contradictions. On and on the contradictions go. It's a fantasy. It's nonsense. Continuing on with the quote from the angel of the Lord. They would not that God should manifest his spirit and his power, for they have a spirit of mockery and a disgust at my word. Lightness, trifling, jesting, and joking are daily practice. They have not set their hearts to seek me. They walk in the sparks of their own kindling, and unless they repent, they shall lie down in sorrow. Thus says the Lord, stand at your post of duty, for I am with you, and I will not leave you nor forsake you. These words from God I have not dared to disregard. That end, that last part was her. These words from God, and end of the quote. These words from God I have not dared to disregard. It was on the light. The person who posted this on Spectrum then noted that Ellen White took the position that the church leadership 
became represented by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, those who rejected the healing view and embraced the legal view. Thus, those of us who reject that leadership are not rejecting the leadership of God any more than Moses and Aaron and the rest of the people who rejected Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were rejecting the leadership of God. Can you see why they shipped her to Australia? Can you see why our church is still wandering in the wilderness instead of going to our heavenly promised land? An online listener, Jonathan Mahiran, in uh, aftermath of our Q&A last week, sent this quote from the Desire of Ages in relation to God's cleansing people from sin. This is out of Desire of Ages 107. I indeed baptize you in water unto repentance, said John, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The prophet Isaiah had declared that the Lord would cleanse his people from their iniquities by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. The word of the Lord to Israel was, I will turn my hand upon thee and surely purge away thy dross and take away all thy uh, thy sin. To sin wherever found, our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. In all who submit to his power, the spirit of God will consume sin. But if men cling to sin, they become identified with it. Then the glory of God, which destroys sin, must destroy them. Jacob, after his night of wrestling with the angel, exclaimed, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Jacob had been guilty of great sin in his conduct toward Esau, but he had repented. His transgression had been forgiven and his sin purged. Therefore, he could endure the revelation of God's presence. Pause. From where was Jacob's sin purged? Was it purged from a record book, a document in heaven? Or or was it purged from Jacob? Notice what the purging or the cleansing is, where the action takes place. It takes place in the heart and minds of people who trust God. And what was purged? What was purged from Jacob at this time? Fear and selfishness and the lies that he'd been telling himself that justified his selfish and fearful behavior. And that's why his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, which means one who with God Overcomes. It doesn't mean one who overcomes God. It means one who, with God, overcomes what? Fear and selfishness. That's what he overcame. He overcame the sinfulness in his own life when he trusted God. He had the righteousness of Christ reproduced in him. He had his heart and mind cleansed. This is the purging, the cleansing, the message that is to be given to the world today. But Wherever men came before God while willfully cherishing evil, they were destroyed. At the second advent of Christ, the wicked shall be consumed with the spirit of his mouth and destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Second Thessalonians 2.8 The light of the glory of God, which imparts life to the righteous, will slay the wicked. You see, sin has two roots, two root elements. Lies, which are consumed by truth, and fear-based selfishness, which is consumed by Perfect love casts out all 
Fear and selfishness of love. And so when the Spirit of God poured out at Pentecost, there were two streams of fire, the fires of truth and the fires of love. And when God unveils himself, those of us who have been transformed by truth and love live in that presence. But those who prefer selfishness and lies can't stand truth and love. So how, how, so how do we get healed? How do we get the lies, fear, and selfishness burned out of our hearts, minds, characters without being destroyed in the process? Malachi writes, after the chapter 3, where he's describing the same event as Daniel 8.14, the cleansing of the sanctuary, where he talks about the Lord you still seek, so suddenly come to his temple, he comes like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, and he cleanses or refines the Levites, that cleansing. Now in chapter 4 he writes, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Uh, And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord God Almighty. Not a root or branch of them will be left. But for you who revere my name, get your mind around this, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. What do you understand this to mean? There's a day coming where all the wicked, all who identify with selfishness, they're going to burn, they're going to consume, they're going to die, they're not going to like this presence. The truth and love is going to burn through lies and, and selfishness. But you who revere my name, the son of righteousness, rise with healing in his wings. Think about this for a minute. Christ is the source of truth, of spiritual life. At the end of time, it is increasing in intensity. And those that love truth, assimilate it. Take it in. They grow in the truth. They're transformed by the truth, ever increasing until they're ready to meet Christ face to face for we shall be like him, it says in scripture. But those who do not love the truth, they deny it. They stay in the darkness of the false ideas about God rooted in the false law lens and imperial dictator God. They are not prepared to stand in his presence. Metaphor. Consider you've been in a dark cave with no light for days. And they bring you out at 4 a.m. in the morning and let you sit there and watch the sunrise. How is that? It's actually quite easy. Tolerable. It's actually quite tolerable. The sun is rising, and it's a very gradual increase. But how about they bring you out of that same cave after so many days at noon on a bright day? You can't tolerate it. It's too much. This is a me- Jesus is rising. The Son of Righteousness is rising with healing in His rays, healing in the beams that come out from Him, the beams of truth. He is rising with increasing intensity for this generation. We are to be advancing in it, assimilating it, being transformed by it. Or are we clinging to ideas from the dark ages, preferring the darkness? Well, consider this quote. This uh, are a couple of quotes. This is Desire of Ages, page 22. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God. What, what is the cause of the darkness here? What kind of darkness is being described? Is this photons? Cloudy day, an eclipse of the moon in front of the sun? No. What kind of darkness is this? Darkness of understanding of reality, primarily of who God is. Okay? The darkness of our minds. That the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. I'm going to pause right there. Get your mind around that. 
You can't defeat lies about God that present him as an authoritarian dictator, an imperial magistrate who kills and tortures. You can't get rid of those kind of lies by using power and might to kill people who believe those kind of lies. (laughs) It just will not work, okay? Because it only reinforces the lie. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So what kind of law uses force to enforce itself? Imperial law, human law. Design law doesn't have to use force. Do you see the root again is back in how you conceive of God's law? Continue on with the quote. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love. And love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Is there darkness in the world today because essentially all of Christianity teaches that God's justice requires him to use force to torture and punish and kill those who don't accept him. Is that not true in essentially all of Christianity? Including in the Adventist church, this is taught. Yes or no? But at this time in history... Okay, get your mind. At this time in history, the sun of righteousness is rising with healing. Healing for our minds, our hearts, our characters as we reject this imperial lie, this penal substitutionary lie, and return to worship the creator whose laws are design laws. There's healing. Continue on with the quote. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifest in contrast to the character of Satan. This work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the heights and depths of the love of God could make it known. Upon the the world's dark night, the son of righteousness must rise with healing in his wings. And then the next quote is from Prophets and Kings 7.16. In these final, final hours of probation for the sons of men, When the fate of every soul is soon to be decided forever, decided by who? Who's going to decide the fate of every soul? That soul. That individual souls we went through last week. The Lord of heaven and earth expects his church to arouse to action as never before. The good news of salvation is to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. For what purpose is the good news to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people? What's the purpose? Is it... To, to know God so trust, trust. that they could make a decision? See, the fate of every person, every soul, is soon to be decided forever. Is the presenting of the gospel important in decision-making? Yes, and so the reason the gospel goes forward to every people is so they can make a decision. So many people have this completely corrupt view of God, and they've never actually been presented with an alternative view. And so for many people, their only choice is believe in this corrupt dictator God or believe in no God. That's their choice. We have a better choice. We have a better message. In the visions of the prophets of old, the Lord of glory was represented as bestowing special light upon his church in the days of darkness and unbelief preceding his second coming. As the son of righteousness, he was to rise upon his church with healing in his wings. And from every true disciple was to be diffused and influenced for life, courage, helpfulness, and true healing. The coming of Christ will take place in the darkest period of earth's history. The days of Noah and Lot picture the condition of the world just before the coming of the Son of Man. The scriptures pointing forward to this time declare that Satan will work with all power and all deceivableness of unrighteousness. Pause. 
This quote, deceivableness of unrighteousness, is 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. This is the place where you find that this little man of sin rises up with the deceivableness of unrighteousness to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. How? What's his deceivableness? How did he do it? By exchanging the truth of God's design law and getting the whole human race to believe that God's law functions like imperial law and thus God becomes the source of inflicted pain. This is how he deceives the world. Justice is punishing people for breaking the law. His working is plainly revealed by the rapidly increasing darkness, the multitudinous errors, heresies, and delusions of the last days. Not only is Satan leading the world captive, but his deceptions are leavening the professed churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great apostasy will develop into darkness deep as midnight. To God's people, it will be a night of trial, a night of weeping, a night of persecution for the true sake. But out of that night of darkness, God's light will shine. Light about what? Light about what? About God himself, his character, his methods, which are magnified when we, we magnify the light of God, when we reject this imperial dictator view and teach the truth about how he runs his universe and the principles of love. He, uh, he causes uh, light to shine out of darkness. When the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the faces of the deep, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So in the night of spiritual darkness, God's word goes forth, let there be light. To the people, he says, arise, shine, for the light is... The light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Behold, says the scripture, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. Christ, the outshining of the Father's glory, came to the world as its light. He came to represent God to men. Pause again. What do we learn about God in the life of Jesus? How many imperial rules did Jesus lay down when he was here? How many people did Jesus seek to punish, to stone, to imprison, to persecute for breaking God's law? Do we really learn about God in the life of Jesus? Or have we rejected the truth that Jesus revealed and replaced it with a Roman dictator lie that teaches that Jesus came to be punished by his father? In the synagogue at Nazareth, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me uh, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are bruised, to preach the account, the acceptable year of the Lord. This was the work he commissioned his disciples to do. You are the lights to the world. He said, Let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. Do we shed the light about God when we teach the penal substitutionary view. Yes? What about the, when he's cleansed the temple? What about that? Wasn't he punishing the tax collector? Who, who was he punishing? The, the Pharisees and the tax collectors. With, with, that were... So, so, so do you, if you read the accounts there, because he took a whip and cracked it? I don't know. Is that, is that what we think? Do we think he was, he was whipping the people? He threw their tables over. He, I mean, he was kind of yes, he did turn their tables over for sure because he wanted to draw attention. Boom! Stop the chaos. Stop the clutter. And he cracks the whip. Why? 
Well, what what's being traded in the in, in what's what's being marketed here? Cattle. Cattle. And what are the cattle trained to respond to? Whips. The whip. He brought the cattle into order to drive them out, not the people. Okay. If you read the context, however he conducted himself, and I want you to imagine this on on your you know Sabbath morning, Sunday morning, wherever you go to church, in the middle of church service, somebody stands up, turns over the the pulpit and the communion table, and it conducts themselves in such a way that all the elders of the church flee. But none of the children run away. If you read the context, the children stayed. They were not frightened. Can you can you can you kind of demonstrate that for us? <laughs> you get my point here, right? His conduct was not the act of an aggressive judicial magistrate seeking to inflict punishment. It was the uh, it was, and I believe it was kind of like what happened when they came to arrest him. A little bit of divinity shown through his humanity with a little bit of truth and love radiating and those whose hearts prefer selfishness and lies were, were completely uncomfortable in his presence and they ran out of his presence uh, just like the uh, Jews when Moses comes off the mountain and sees Moses' reflected face they can't stand it and they beg for him to cover it but the children, the innocents they are not offended they're drawn to love and truth they love this and they're drawn to him so I don't see this as an as a imperialism at all. I see it as his setting right the object lesson that was being misrepresented because they were making it appear that God functions like they do. And what they were doing is not just exchanging, they were cheating. They were fraudulently misrepresenting. They were ripping people off with marked up um, exchange rates. And I just got back from Australia and I can tell you what that feels like. Okay. <laughs> Seriously, I looked on the uh, internet and the exchange rate for the U.S. dollar to the Australian dollar was 71 cents, meaning that uh, uh, you get 71 Australian cents for, um, wait, you get 71 U.S. cents for one of the Australian dollars. But when I went to the exchange table to exchange it, they offered me 60 cents, uh, 60 U.S. cents for one of their dollars. Like, what happened to that 11 cents per dollar? Okay. Uh, and, and in addition to that, there's this service fee. And I said, no thanks. Okay. No thanks. I'm not, I'm not doing that. So, but this is what they were doing. It's huge markups to cheat people out of their money. And, 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 and the way they did that also is they would only accept the temple coin to buy the sacrificial animal. They wouldn't, if you came with a, with a Roman coin, you couldn't buy the sacrificial animal. You had to first exchange it for the temple coin, which was marked up at inflated rates. And so they made it appear that God was this, uh, this being who cheats people in order for them to do something to merit salvation from him, which was paganism. And so he said, this whole system, my father's house will not be called a house of thieves. It's logical to think he was also signaling the end of that system because he was going to die shortly. And when White says in Zara of Ages, you go read it, she said he was announcing his mission, that this was a metaphor. Remember, the whole temple is metaphor. It's object lesson for the cleansing of the spirit temple. And he was announcing his mission to cleanse the spirit temple from all the things that defile us, the selfishness, the lusts, the passions. And so in doing that, these things that were infecting this temple, he's saying, I'm going to come and cleanse the temple. So it was an object lesson saying his mission to cleanse the spirit temple. So it wasn't punishment, it was teaching. Back to the quote. Let's see. Thus, in the night of spiritual darkness, God's glory is to shine forth through this church in lifting up the bowed down and comforting those that mourn. All around us are heard the wails of the world's sorrow. On every hand are the needy and distressed. 
It is ours to aid in relieving and softening life's hardships and misery. The wants of the soul, only the love of Christ can satisfy. Pause. I can tell you, just look around the world. I see this all the time. People are living in fear. They're living in guilt. They're living in shame, fear of rejection, fear of not being good enough, fear of failure. And only the truth and love of God can set them free. The woman caught in adultery, dragged out before him. She, she was initially fearful of being stoned, but her greatest fear was that she was a sinner and unredeemable. And this is what Christ, with so much power on her, not, once he dispatched the crowd, what did he do for her? He brought her truth and love. Where are your accusers? Implying, I'm not your accuser. You don't hear me accuse I know what you were just doing, and I'm not here to condemn you. And he says it, neither do I condemn. How can you not condemn me? Well, what I was just doing, the word says, the teachers say, the entire culture says, I deserve to die. How can you go against tradition? How can you go against the word of God, which says the adulterer should be sinned? What is wrong with you, man? And he's showing her reality. I know what you were just doing. And had you not been caught... And brought out here, you'd have slipped home, head hung low, consumed with guilt, with shame, with insecurity, with fear of condemnation. And what he brought her? He brought her truth that God loves her and love to heal her, and she became a faithful follower of his. This is the gospel. People are longing for a message of love. But what does the church take? It's a message of behavioral performance, and if your performance isn't good enough, then God will punish you. Or loophole performance. You can never keep it good enough. You're never good enough, no matter all your righteousness and filthy rag. But it's good news. Jesus came. He kept the law perfectly. And if you accept his legal law-keeping in your behalf, then in your record book in heaven, you get stamped perfect law-keeping even though you didn't. You just keep living in sin. Just claim the legal pardon of Jesus, and you get righteousness declared against your account even though you're still unrighteous. Which means the whole church wanders in a wilderness because we have no faith in God to actually heal our hearts. We don't trust him. There are many from whom hope has departed. Bring back the sunshine to them. Light is a blessing, a universal blessing, pouring forth its treasures on a world unthankful, unholy, demoralized. So it is with the light of the sun of righteousness. The whole earth, wrapped as it is in the darkness of sin and sorrow and pain, is to be lighted with the knowledge of God's love. What did we light people with? The knowledge of the proper list of rules, the proper rituals, the proper foods, the proper dress, the proper days of worship, or a knowledge of God's love. From no sect, rank, or class of people is the light shining from heaven's throne to be excluded. Christ has made every provision that his church shall be a transformed body illumined with the light of the... Start that sentence over. Christ has made every provision that his church shall be transformed body, illumined with the light of the world, possessing the glory of Emmanuel. It is his purpose that every Christian shall be surrounded with a spiritual atmosphere of light and peace. He desires that we shall reveal his own joy in our lives. If Christ has made every provision that his church shall be transformed to reveal his character of love, why has that not happened? If he has made every provision for this, why hasn't it happened? Why hasn't it occurred? Because we don't accept it. Why don't we accept the provisions he's made? 
because we've been offered a fraudulent, false remedy. So we are rejecting the provision. Just like 1888, we reject the remedy. The imperial law lie corrupts all the teachings and undermines trust in God. And then the last paragraph of this quote. Arise, shine forth, thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord shall rise upon you. Christ is coming with power and great glory. He is coming in his own glory and with the glory of the Father. And the holy angels will attend him on his way. While all the world is plunged in darkness, there will be light in every dwelling of the saints. They will catch the first light of his second appearing. The the unsullied light will shine from his splendor. And Christ the Redeemer will be admired by all who have served him. While the wicked flee, Christ's followers will rejoice in his presence. Did you hear that? His followers will catch the first light of his second appearing. Do you see the first light of his second coming today? The light of the truth of God's character, which must dawn upon our consciousness and our reality and our minds and our hearts to bring us back into trust, to transform us. This light must dawn upon us before he can come. This is the light that precedes his second coming. Prophets and Kings 7.20. Do you see it? Is it dawning on you? Monday's lesson, it says, we all know very well the importance of the choices we make, and we all know, too, how wrong choices can very negatively impact our lives and the lives of others. The question is, how can we know how to make the right choices? How can we know how to make the right choices? I'm going to give some guidelines that can really help. Have you noticed there are some people who consistently make better choices than other people? Well, I'm going to give you some guidelines that the people who make consistent choices are usually abiding by. First, reason and evidence-based decisions over emotion-based decisions. First principle... Choose to do what you understand is right, healthy, and reasonable because it's actually right, healthy, and reasonable regardless of what your emotions are telling you. Does that mean we should ignore our feelings? No, no, not at all. But we have a strong feeling in a matter we should take and we should explore. Why am I feeling this way? What's it coming from? What are the factors stirring up this feeling? And then understand those feelings in light of evidence and truth. If you're in a valley of decision and you're really uncomfortable making a certain choice, it's reasonable to not make the choice to step back, pause, go in some prayerful reflection and contemplation and evidence searching if you're uncomfortable with the choice emotionally. That's a very wise thing to do unless the choice is unquestionably, without, without question, you understand the right and wrong of it and you're still uncomfortable with it. And that, I see that a lot then you still need to make the choice if it's unquestionable. You really know what the right and wrong is. You just don't want to make the choice for some reason. And I see that a lot. You won't be able to move forward until you make the choice that you understand to be actually the healthy choice. So, uh, second principle, understand design law. The protocols upon which God has actually created reality. The more that you understand law of love, law of liberty, law of worship, law of exertion, law, law, so many of these laws... Laws of sowing and reaping. There's so many of them. As you understand these laws and the protocols upon which God works, it gives wisdom in your discernment of which actions to take. Living in a state of communion with God in which your mind and heart is constantly seeking or open to God's leading. 
And so in real time, you might be facing it, you can actually real time. I do this. Lord, what, what would you have me think about this? Is there any insight, any, 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 any principles I need to compare, any Bible verses, any, any concerns, any ideas I need? I mean, just open to the Holy Spirit to bring ideas to your mind. Differentiate, this is a big one, between moral decision-making and decisions that are not moral in nature. Moral decision-making are decisions that are actually morally right and wrong, uh, in harmony or breaking God's design laws, uh, doing evil or sinfulness or not doing evil or sinfulness. Uh, Distinguish those types of decisions from decisions that have no moral consequence at all, like which toothpaste should I use? Which umbrella should I buy? Which neighborhood should I live in? Which car should I drive? There's so many decisions we make all the time that have no moral implication at all. Don't, don't get stuck in those types of problems. Those need to be made on the merits of other variables that are not morally right or wrong, like income, location to schools that you want your kids to go to, etc., etc., etc. But it's not a moral right or wrong. Decisions, and then there are decisions that could be moral or non-moral depending on the motives and reasons for the decision. Could be either way, like which job? If you're specifically called by God and you say no, Jonah, you see that was a moral decision for Jonah. He didn't want to do that job. But most of us haven't had that specific call. And so most of the time the job is not a moral decision for most of us. Clothing, if it promotes ungodly ideas or motives or is designed to cause disruption and uh, hostility between groups, uh, uh, offensive things or lewd things, or, or it's designed just to make everyone look at me and think I'm the most wonderful being in the world, and you know, it's, it, this is a moral decision because of the motive of, the, uh, of what you're trying to achieve with the clothing. Realize there are differences or there is a difference between making mistakes and choosing evil. Choosing evil is a moral decision. It's immoral to choose evil. Making mistakes are not. And many people miss this. They don't understand. You have to differentiate your mind. Step back. Wait a minute. The difference between making mistakes and choosing evil. We want to avoid choosing evil. It is not possible to advance, grow, and develop without making mistakes. It's not possible. You need to give yourself freedom to make mistakes. If you're taking musical instrument lessons, you will hit some wrong notes. And if you live in fear of hitting wrong notes, you will never really learn to play the instrument. If you're taking math classes or any subject for that matter, you're going to get some questions wrong. Making mistakes is not choosing evil. It's through making the mistakes and then reflecting on where the mistakes were made, we update and grow and reduce the mistakes we make. See, is there a difference between making a math error in your check registry, and because of that, you accidentally overdraft a check? Is that the same as someone purposely writing fraudulent checks? Are those the same? But could they look the same? Both people bounced a check. The behavior externally could look similar, couldn't it? But they're not the same. One's a mistake. One's choosing evil. Don't confuse making mistakes with choosing evil. I have so many people that come to see me because they don't understand this and they live in fear of doing it wrong, making a mistake, perfection in all behavior, rather than stepping back and say, wait a minute, no, uh, I give myself permission to make mistakes as long as I'm being vigilant and honest and doing my best. And when mistakes happen, I'll just look at them and go, okay, what can I learn from it? How can I do it better? How can I grow from this? 
steps. And that's all part of growth. And then grow in spiritual maturity. There's another principle. Grow in spiritual maturity. Your method for determining the moral right and wrong. Remember the seven levels of moral development? How do you tell the moral right and wrong? Uh, We want to grow in our spiritual maturity. Past reward and punishment, level one. Past marketplace exchange, level two. Past the social conformity of, of, of right and wrong because the computer group says it. Past the law and order list of rules. At least into love for other people. But love for other people can still lead to some unhealthy decisions when we don't understand the principles of God. I see this happen all the time. I see many people in church, in church um, culture who are operating at level five, they love other people. But they don't understand God's principles and design laws. And so when they're in a marriage relationship in which their husband abused them, uh, physically batters them, but the husband hasn't slept with another woman, and they go to the pastor, and the pastor gives counsel, and the pastor says, well, they haven't committed adultery, and so if you love him, you need to stay with him and continue to pray for him uh, so that uh, his soul might be saved by your loving um, witness to him, neither the pastor nor the woman who stays in that circumstance understand design law. And what is design law? You reap what you sow. Or law of exertion. The things you exercise become stronger. You see, if the woman really loved her husband, if she really loves him, does she want his eternal salvation? What happens in the heart, mind, character of a man who abuses his wife? Does he become more kind, more gentle, more Christ-like? Or does heart become more hardened? His conscience become more seared? His character becomes more corrupt every time he abuses her? Okay? So if, if she loves him, then she doesn't stay and subordinate to that treatment. She says, I love you too much to stand by quietly while you sear your conscience, harden your heart, and warp your character. I want to see you become like Christ, who loves himself so, loved his church so much that he sacrificed himself for the church. And you're to love your wife like Christ loves the church, sacrificing yourself for me. And you don't love me like that. And I love you too much to quietly let you think what you're doing is okay. It's not. See, we have to go simply beyond loving others. We have to actually embrace the principles of God. And then at least, at least to that level. And then purposes of God. What are the purposes of God? And it's level seven. So that we can grow in, those, in our moral decision making. They'll be helpful. And then other things you can do to help in your decision making. Get more information about the decision. More data, more facts can inform you more about the decision, whether it's a, um, particularly in the decisions that are not moral decisions. They're just, you know, should I move to this city or, or take this job or buy this car? The more data you can get, the more informed you can make and the better decision. Weigh the pros and the cons of your decision. Actually write them down. What are the benefits? What are the cons? And what are the pros and cons of not making the decision? Weigh it through. Get insider guidance from people with experience in that particular decision-making path. And then at some point, get your mind around what I'm about to say, guys, make a choice. It's better in most, emphasize most, not all, decisions of life to actually make a choice, even if it's the wrong choice, than to make no choice. Because you're at a crossroad in life. You're not sure should you go left or you should go right. You don't know. There's nothing. You've prayed. There's no signs. There's no maps. You have no idea which way to go. 
It's better to choose the wrong road because as you start down that road, the further down that path you go, you're gathering more information, more data that's giving you, informing you whether you're on the right road or the wrong road. And if it's the wrong road, you can turn around, go back, go down the other road. But if you never make a choice, you stay stuck. And many people are at the crossroads of some decision in life and they're stuck and they never take their life anywhere. My wife, when she started college, was uncertain about what major she wanted to major in. Uh, and so she declared for accounting and she took a semester of accounting classes. Sorry about this, Chip. But she took a semester of accounting classes and one semester was enough to inform her that accounting was not for her. And she went a different direction. But had she not taken that step, she might have just not started. Well, I'm not sure which I should do. I'll wait till I really know. And she never goes to college. But she chose a path, got information, wrong path, new path, but she engaged. Better decision-making than waiting to have certainty. I'm going to have to jump. There are several more things in the decision-making process. Um, well, it says at the end, in the last sentence it's, uh, of the uh, day, it says, if we, if we in faith and humility surrender our lives to Jesus or to God, we can move ahead in faith on the choices we make. Think what they're saying here. Wendell? Just one point. I think some things that don't appear to be moral choices can have moral consequences. How expensive of a car I drive may limit what else I can do with my funds. Corbin was an extreme in, in Jesus' time. I devote all my money to the temple, so I'm sorry, folks. I can't take care of you. So how we do non it's the motive you're saying, rather than... So the, what you're pointing out is the decision itself. It's the motive and what we're trying to achieve by the decision. But also, we, we, we can limit our, our opportunities to do what God asks us to do by making poor choices. Correct. So what do you think about this statement? If we, in faith and humility, surrender our lives to Him, we can move ahead in faith on the choices we make. Uh, I read this, and I'm, I find this quite flawed. I find quite, this quite flawed. Thinking, do you, do you think that those people who burned to death in Waco with the Branch Davidians would have agreed with this, that they've surrendered their life to their God and they move forward in faith? Wouldn't they agree with that? That's what they were doing. They moved forward in faith. Do you think the people who drank the, the, the Kool-Aid at Jonestown, I watched uh, the, uh, the thing recently about survivors of Jonestown, and these people were sincere people, they were deluded, they were duped, but they were moving forward in faith. I think this is quite flawed. If in faith and humility we surrender ourselves to him, we can move forward in faith in our decision. Not if we're ignoring reality. Not if we're ignoring evidence. Not if we're ignoring truth. You can surrender to your God and move forward in faith and ignore the evidence and truth and be quite destroyed in that process. So Ellen White writes the following in the second selected messages, 56. Faith in a lie will not have a sanctifying influence upon the life of the character. No error is truth or can be made truth by repetition or by faith in it. Sincerity will, will never save a soul from the consequences of believing in error. Without sincerity, there is no true religion, but sincerity in a false religion will never save a man. Why not? Isn't it about sincerity of heart? No. It says, I may be perfectly sincere in following the wrong road, but that will not make it the right road or bring me to the place I wish to reach. The Lord does not want us to have a blind credulity and call that the faith that sanctifies. The truth is the principle that sanctifies, and therefore it becomes us to know what is the truth. 
So this thing that they put in here doesn't even speak about truth. Just have faith and surrender and be humble, and you can be sure that you'll be fine if you have faith. Not if you're outside the truth. It becomes of us to know the truth, to understand the truth as Jesus revealed it to us. Be thinkers. And I'm not here to tell you what the truth is. I'm here to present ideas. Weigh it out for yourself. And we have like seven minutes, I think, to try to do how do you choose a life partner. <laughs> Wednesday's lesson. Plenty of time. <laughs> so, so first, first, I've got a whole list of things in the notes. We don't get through them, like, like more than ten different things. But the big principle is... If you want somebody who's a trustworthy life partner, they must, one, love you more than themselves. If they love themselves more than you, eventually they'll hurt you to protect themselves. So they have to love you more than self. Two, they not only have to love you more than self, they must have a certain level of maturity where they have self-governance. You may have a child that's six years of age and really loves you, and if they saw you in danger, they'd run out to try and protect you. They'd put themselves in harm's way for you, but you wouldn't trust them to take your check to the bank. They're not mature enough to handle life's responsibilities. So you not only love you more than stuff, but they have to have a certain level of maturity. And they have to have wisdom. They need to actually understand God's designs for life and relationships. Law of liberty needs to be understood. Many people I know in church culture who come to really love their spouse more than self. And, and they have self-governance, but they are at level four in their operations. And they think that, that the way God works is authoritarian. And they think the husband should rule over the wife. And he shows love by setting boundaries for her and keeping her in compliance. This is not maturity. And that person will hurt the relationship because it will violate the law of liberty. So those three is a big one looking for the character qualities. Now, 10 specific things that you can do to find a healthy life partner. Number one, first, be healthy. Healthy relationships require healthy people. So the number one thing you can do is to do some self-reflection in light of God's word and asking the Holy Spirit on what areas in your life that you need to address to become the healthiest person you can be for whomever your life partner will be. Because if you are spiritually or relationally or psychologically or emotionally unhealthy, you cannot have a healthy relationship. Healthy relationships require healthy people. So step one is do whatever you can to become the healthiest person you can be through God's grace. Step one. You know how many people skip step one? They go straight to one of these others to try to find somebody because they feel empty. They feel inadequate. They feel lonely. They feel something's missing. And they're looking for someone to fill the void in them to make them whole. Those relationships are codependent relationships. They're dysfunctional relationships. They're fear-based relationships because they'll fly into a relationship like that. They'll feel euphoric. They'll feel satisfied. They'll feel finally my one and only, finally somebody who loves, finally, finally, finally. But then because their relationship's based on need, I need them to love me. I need them to like me. It becomes fear-based. I'm afraid they'll leave me. I'm afraid they really won't love me. And they become controlling. And these relationships always die. Requires first that we become whole in Christ. Amen in order to be able to pursue a healthy relationship. Two, be honest. Far too many people are afraid of hurting someone else's feelings that they fail to be honest. If your partner, in dating or in marriage, asks whether you like their new hairstyle, and you don't. Well, as kindly as you can say it. I mean, there's way, different ways to say it, right? But you say, hey, if this is your hair, if you love it this way, I'm 100% supportive of you having your hair this way. But if you're asking me if I like it this way, no, I don't. But if that's the way you love it, I still love you. It won't change my love for you, but I don't find it appealing. Seriously. 
You need to be able to do this. If you can't do this, you're going to have real problems. In your life. How about somebody you love? Relationship, dating, marriage, cooks you a meal. How do you like the food? <laughs> well, th- first, again, thank you so much for cooking for me. Thank you for taking the time to prepare me. It means a lot that you would do that. I appreciate it. But if you're really asking me if I enjoy the flavors that have come through in this meal, and I would like to have them again, well, let's just drop this off future menus. <laughs> Seriously, this is critically important if you want a healthy relationship. Because if you do this, and I can tell you, I do this. Anybody at Dallas, just ask my wife. She'll tell you. But when you do this, and I don't do this often, because most of the time it, it's very rare that there's something I don't like. But when I don't like it, I let her know. But then because I do, when I do say, oh, I just love your hair looks great, or this is so good, I love this meal, it actually means something. If, if and, and by the way, when you really don't like something, but you don't want to hurt their feelings, so you say you do, your, your body's nonverbals, your tone, the inflection, the eye, you will give yourself away. It will not come across as sincere. They'll know you really don't mean it, but you're just trying not to hurt their feelings. And so what will happen in the course of the relationship, one, when you do like something, it becomes meaningless because you like everything and there's nothing you really have a preference on. Two, you say to your partner that you don't have enough confidence in them that, that you can be honest with them, that you think so poorly of them that you don't respect them enough to actually tell them the truth of what you're thinking. So these, it becomes very damaging not to be honest. Yes? So if, if she says, hey, does this dress make me look too fat, then you have to trust that their response to that is going to be okay. Ah, so it says when the dress makes you look too fat, there's multiple answers to that question. To whom? <laughs> The answer is the fat makes you too fat. There you go. That's the answer. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, do you think you're fat? <laughs> yeah. No, no, the, no, the, no, this is an important one. I have, no, no, I, this is an important one. Because I have many patients with anorexia. And they feel fat. And they think they're fat. And they look in the mirror and they see fat. And they are 85 pounds at 5'11". So the question, does this make me look fat, may have absolutely nothing to do with their body image. It may have something else to do entirely. And so it's a trap. It really is a trap question. So you reflect it back. You reflect it back in that particular case. And you say, so what's going on that you're asking me about your weight? Are you uncomfortable with your weight? And then there's the anger, the blow up. And the reason is the blow up is because they are uncomfortable with their weight and they're wanting you to help live in denial. They're wanting you to help say, no, you look great because they're wanting to believe a lie that they're not comfortable with something in their life. Now, if they're actually anorectic and they uh, have no real body mass issues, then that what they're actually most comfortable with, they're most comfortable with their weight. That's why they focus on their weight because that's the conscious thing that they are comfortable focusing on. Okay? What they're not comfortable with is whatever is hiding behind the feeling of fatness that they don't want to deal with. So be honest. And then you might have to say, because you may not be you know, a psychiatrist and be able to handle these questions, you might have to say, hey, let's get some counseling for you. <laughs> if it's really a serious issue like that. Three, be yourself. See, the only, and this kind of goes three, four, okay, four is create a list of non-negotiables that a life partner must possess in order to be qualified to be with you. 
Non-negotiable qualifications. If you were uh, running a business and you were hiring a vice president for a department, uh, would you have a list of qualifications that the vice president needed to have in order to be qualified for the position? Would, you, would there be an objective list? Yes. yes. Which is more important to you, the vice president of a company or your life partner? Do you have a list of qualifications? Most people never think of the list of qualifications. Think. There are actual qualifications that each one of us have that our life partner must have. If they don't have them, we will be dissatisfied with that person. And if they don't have even one of the absolute qualifications, remember, these are non-negotiables. Any single one of them, if they don't have it, that one alone disqualifies them. This is important. And, And what happens is if you get with somebody that doesn't have one and you marry them because they have many of them, The one they don't have, you'll begin working to invest them with. You'll be working to change them. Now, true or false, for somebody to be qualified to be your life partner, whoever that person is must genuinely like you for who you are. That's a non-negotiable. goes on your list. Whoever is going about has to like me for who I am. Then back to number three, which says, be yourself. The dating process is never trying to get someone to like you. It's evaluating the qualifications of a person to be with you. And so if you're dating someone and you discover they really don't like you when you're yourself, you don't get your feelings hurt. You don't try to change to be what they want you. You simply say, thank you for letting me know you're not qualified to be with me. And you move on. (laughs) Uh, You you laugh at that, but it's true. You see, can't, can't get your mind around this. Can you realize there can be two good people, two good people of good Christian character who are a terrible match for, for, for marriage, Right? It's not good or bad necessarily. Sure, they can be bad, corrupt character too, but you can have good charactered people who would just make a terrible marriage because they don't, they don't fit in other areas of life. So be yourself, create a list of non-negotiables, uh, agree on child and child-rearing principles before you marry. You need to have a discussion about that. Do you want kids or not kids? If it's, I've had people, couples come see me where one of them was absolutely opposed to children, the other one absolutely was a requirement and they would feel completely bereft in life if they don't have kids. You guys shouldn't have married. I'm just telling you right now. One of you is going to be angry at the other one. Unless one of you can readjust and surrender that absolute demand. And I've seen some marriages break up because of that. Common vision and life goals. I'm not going to go through them, but I will tell you, set some visions and have those conversations before um, you get married. Shared lifestyle. This is important. Lifestyle. The lifestyles you're, are you going to have Sabbaths together or not have Sabbaths together? Are you going to have similar diets? Are you going to have alcohol in the home or not to have alcohol in the home? Uh, you're going to, I mean, the, your lifestyle is a huge thing. Big differences in lifestyle can cause all types of conflict that has nothing to do with the eternal salvation of a person, but may have a lot to do with whether you have harmony in the home. Compatible IQ. This is huge. Many people don't realize it. You, uh, you want somebody who can actually cognate on your level, who can appreciate your insights, your wit, your humor, who can, who can wrestle out the problems of life together with you, who can share your, your epiphanies and dreams and aspirations with If there's a major, major gap in IQ between the two, one becomes very boring and the other one becomes completely uh, unreachable. And there's gaps that often flow in those relationships. And people will find confidants outside the marriage to share their their dreams, aspirations, epiphanies, and insights with. Same religion, belief system, or philosophy of life. I don't have time to unpack that one. And, and the tenth one, have your prospective spouse meet your family and friends and get feedback from them. Sometimes we're so emotional we can't see. And have other people that you trust, people that have proven themselves reliable friends of yours and really care about you, give you feedback, but then you don't make a decision based on what they tell you. You simply hear their feedback and process it through all you know. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you've created us with individuality, the capacity to reason and think, to weigh evidences, and genuine freedom of choice. And Lord, our longing is to make consistently, reliably, healthy choices in harmony with your methods and principles. And to that end, we ask that you will send your spirit of truth and love to heal our minds, our faculties, give us discernment, wisdom, help us understand, learn, and apply your principles that we can become more like you and ultimately become lights that show the truth of your kingdom in a world that is so darkened in the, in the false message of who you are so that the world can see you and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.